Hey, this is JJ Matat. I'm the worship pastor at Jubilee, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope it ministers to your heart and allows God to speak right to you. If you would like to know more about our church, visit jfc.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Glad that you are here on your seat when you walked in uh, are the elements for communion. And at the end of the service, we'll all take it together. So hang on to that. Don't just push it to the side. You will need it. We're in a series called The Parables of Jesus. And uh, I think this is the third week into it. Maybe the fourth week. I'm not, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. But I do know this, third week. I do know this. um, We were only going to do a four-week series on it. And I felt two things. One, I felt like it's really hard to do justice to the parables of Jesus in four four parables, right? So we extended it another month to do eight of them because we just believe that we're hardly even touching the surface, even just doing eight of them. There's just so much there that we can teach about. And then the second thing is that I just think that um, there's so much wisdom, so much to be gained from understanding these parables, so much that can, for, for a people group, that God can do with us when we come into the teachings of Jesus. And like all of scripture, 2 Timothy chapter three says, all scripture is good for teaching, reproof, correction, exhortation, all scripture. So you could go from Genesis all the way to Revelation. All of it's good. But in my mind, um, and just in my spirit, something about the words of Jesus are just so powerful and they're still so true today. They're so relevant for right now. When he spoke them 2000 years ago, they were so applicable and they touched right into the heart of where people were living. And then when you read those words and you apply them in your life, and I'll show you in just a second, they're just as applicable and maybe even more powerful today in my mind. Maybe like, like it's just aged so well, right? It's just so alive and it's so good. So uh, today, uh, we're, we're going to talk about the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And just want to say right off the bat, this is one of those uh, parables that it's much easier to read and say amen to than it is to leave here and do it. I mean, come over here. I know it's cold this morning. Just take a moment and breathe. It's, it's much easier to, to read about the Good Samaritan and think, oh yeah, we should do that than it is to actually go out and apply that right there. And I'll, so I'll, I'll, I'll show you, I had an interesting, um, my own parable happened yesterday and I'll talk about it in just uh, a moment. We find the scripture that we're gonna read in Luke chapter 10, uh, 25 through 37, if you wanna follow along while I read it. Uh, one day, <clears throat> an expert in religious law, and that's just fancy speak for a lawyer. So one day, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. So he's not there actually trying to gain knowledge necessarily. He's not like, he's not following Jesus because Jesus is necessarily his rabbi. He's probably very intrigued by the miracles like everybody was around Jesus. Probably saw that Jesus's teachings were different than what it was from a Pharisee. Probably even, you know, having a mind that's around the law and Jesus is able to, um, to address this guy where he's at with, with, his, with his brain but he's also able to reach his heart, obviously. And that's a powerful thing. When you can get someone's intellect and their heart at the same time, that's a powerful thing that can happen. That's when life change happens for a person. And this guy is just right on the edge. That's what we have here. It's a guy that's, he's not there yet, but he's close. He's asking the right questions and here's his question. So he tests Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus reply, 
What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it or how do you understand it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind. And then the conjunction of and is there. And most people, when they read this scripture, they stop right there. They say the most important thing is to love God with all. But Jesus uh, actually teaches that both of these things are equal. So the guy says, with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. And if the guy would have just stopped there, right? What a great story it is. But like all of us, what is in our heart that we can't just stop it good enough? Why do we have to take it to the next level? So the guy goes, the man wanted to justify his actions. And I think whenever we find ourselves wanting to justify why we think what we think, do what we do, or don't do what we do, we're in this guy's place right here. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story, and this is the parable. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, and when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road without even checking on him. He just passed right by. And then a temple assistant, a Levite, walked over. He's coming down the same road a little while later. He walked over and at least took a look at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side of the road. Then a despised Samaritan, so look at the way he's described, a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt what? So one more time, he felt, so remember that word for him. Going over him, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him personally at the inn. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. And then Jesus asked the lawyer this question. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? You recognize, I mean, there's only one answer, right? I mean, Jesus has this guy. He tells, if he'd have made the Jew the good guy in the story and the Samaritan the bad guy in the story, it would have been like instantaneously how to win friends and influence people. Every Jew in that room right there would have gone, oh, he's so smart. But Jesus takes it and twists it by making the Jewish the bad guy, making the hated Samaritan the good guy and putting them in that place and saying, okay, which guy acted like the good? What are you gonna say? There's only one answer here. So the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yep. Now go and do the same. It's a powerful, powerful story. Here's the only problem with it in 2020. We lose the context of what he's trying to do using Jewish people and Samaritans. The context that we have, literally, I think you can see this. I think that you see I'm not changing anything. I think the context of this whole thing is we're supposed to love God and love people. You can't separate the two things from each other. Do you agree with that statement? Yes. And in fact, here, I'll just like, like, let's do this real quickly. How do you know you're growing spiritually? What's the barometer, the thermometer, the measuring stick? How do you know you're growing spiritually? Can you measure it by how many times you go to church? I don't think so. Because there's a lot of people who go to meetings who aren't having any spiritual experience. Agree? Uh, do you measure it then by how much money you give? I don't think so. 
Because like, just because you can write a check or drop money in an offering or to a cause doesn't mean that anything good has happened in your heart. Some people do it because they need the tax write-off. It's nothing more than that right there. How do you measure spiritual growth? I think the only way, truly the only way that you can measure it is whether or not you're loving God more today than you did yesterday. That's the only way to measure it. But if you say, and most of the people who got up this morning, got dressed, ventured out in this weather, 15 degrees driving over here, by the way. And I think that's like the high for today. So if you got dressed, came out in this weather, you're sitting here right now, let's say that you have a little more interest than the average person on spiritual things. I'm gonna give you that right there. So when I say to you, like, how do we measure spiritual growth? We're loving God more right now than we were yesterday. Most of you are gonna go amen, but we've gotta add this addendum to it, Roy, and here's the addendum, right? Not only loving God more today than yesterday, are we loving people more today than yesterday? Because Jesus even teaches in the gospel, all of the New Testament is filled with this fact. If we say we love God, but we don't love people, we are fooling ourselves. Lying to ourselves is what the Bible says. You cannot say you love God and not love people. They are synonymous with each other. They can't be broken apart. They are, that's why the conjunction says, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In one of the other gospels, Jesus actually makes the comment that both things are equal with each other. One is not more important. And if you ask the average believer, tell me the most important thing in your spiritual life, you'd say loving God. Many of us won't say loving people too. Because it's easy. In fact, it's even said this way, and I'll show you in just a second. Uh, Jesus said, how, how, how can you say that, that you, you love God whom you haven't seen when you can't love people who you do see. And what he's actually trying to say is, it's real easy when there's no flesh and blood to it, right? To say, I love it. But when it gets messy, can you still love it? Because that's where the test is at. So this, this message, this parable, boy, it's far deeper than what we just like read over the surface. And then by the way, let me just say this, it's almost perfect in its simplicity. Like if you try to like look for every little nuance behind every sentence and every comma and every, you're making a mistake. It is as simple and as upfront as it is. Love God, love people. Who's my neighbor? (laughs) Well, we'll talk about that. The only thing that I can relate it to like in our culture that would even possibly come, come close to this Jewish Samaritan issue and why Jesus is using this. The only conflict that I can, what conflict would you attach it to today? Here's all I heard. <laughs> what, what conflict would you attach it to? Politics. So we're living in a time, look, I know this is true. I know that our nation, as young as it is, has been through some, some definitely difficult times on civil issues, uh, the, the civil war. None of us were there. If you were like, well, maybe, pastor, let me tell you. I'd love to talk to you after then, but I doubt you have the energy to be able to do. So... <clears throat> None of us were there and obviously far more divided in our nation at that time than I think any other time. I think we'd agree with that. Now, I was born uh, in in 64, early in 64, January of 64. And by the time civil rights came in the late 60s, I, I remember bits and pieces. 
but I was far too young to be aware of what was going on. So it's, I, I just, the only reason I'm even bringing that up is when we say right now, our nation's never been more divided, boy, that's a little bit of hyperbole. Right? It's a little, so maybe a better way to say it is, in our current lifetime, <clears throat> we don't recognize it as being more divided than it is right now. Is that agreeable? So the only reason I'm using this and even try, it's the only analogy I can even come close to, to try to tell you what Jesus is doing. Because we don't live in that culture at that time, none of us know a Samaritan. None of us, what was wrong with a Samaritan? But if we're sitting in the room today and I substitute Republican and Democrat in this, I can begin to draw a little bit of the, the heated division. I mean, you watch, if you were to watch and let media be the only thing that guides your thinking about what's going on in our country, you would think that two people are about to have another civil war, wouldn't you? Yeah. Would think it's that bad. Yeah. And the only reason I even use it is just trying to bring to you what Jesus is trying to do. When he takes the bad guy and makes him the good guy and takes the good guy and makes him the bad guy, Jesus is trying to stir the pot and get people to think far bigger than your neighbor is not just the person sitting next to you. Your neighbor, you want to know who your neighbor is? I wrote this down in my notes. I'm going to give away a little bit of my message right now. Who's my neighbor? Anyone who needs your help and anyone who will help you. Sometimes I've had people who have the least reason to help me have been the most helpful in my life. And the people that I thought should help me the most didn't. Anybody else ever been there? It's kind of weird when that happens. So why is Jesus using the Samaritans in this conflict? It's a conflict inside of Israel that at that point, when Jesus brings it up, is hundreds of years old. It has to do with more of a religious division than anything else. And here it is. It's gonna sound silly to you, but so the Jews, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham had a covenant with God. God told him on this mountain, sacrifice your son. It's a picture of God sacrificing his son. That mountain is Mount Moriah. It's the temple mount where they built the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans had a mountain in their town, which was just about 25 miles, 30 miles from Jerusalem. And they have a mountain there where they simply said, it's this mountain that God wants us to worship on. Now that sounds so insignificant, doesn't it? Like we're fighting over a mountain. But when we have division amongst people, isn't it usually over silly things that it begins with and then it turns into incredibly difficult, huge problems that seem insurmountable, yes or no? And so in this situation, it really boils down to, and then Jesus, when he comes in and he talks to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he even says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know, and we Jews worship what we do know because salvation is through the Jews. So Jesus is saying, you're actually wrong in your beliefs. But then he goes outside of the box and he says, to, I'm getting way ahead of my message. He says to her, listen, a time is coming and is here now when we won't worship on that mountain or this mountain, the worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth, wherever they are. So he's actually like, let's overcome this issue of where, and let's get to the real heart of the issue that if we're going to be one, it's about us and God, isn't it? It's a powerful teaching. In John 4, 9, do you have it in there or is it just in my notes? I know they're looking real quick. It's just in my notes. In John 4, 9, uh, the woman at the well actually says to Jesus, you Jews refuse to have anything to do with us Samaritans. So she's bringing up the problem to Jesus right away. If you're taking the online notes, 
Let me give you the three fill in the blanks. Here's the first one. What's the proof of loving God? The proof of loving God. Verse 27 uh, covers it. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your, whole, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The proof of loving God is that we're loving other people too. If you say like, hey, I know I'm growing spiritually, and I say to you, okay, show me how you love God more. How, how can you tell me, how can you show me you love God more? I just have this thing in my heart for God. How can you prove that you love God more? You're loving people more. First John 4.20, look at this right here. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a what? That's a, that's a strong word, man. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? I mean, you can't mix that up. Luke 6.35, here's Jesus. Love your enemies. Yay. We read that without any real like impact. It's like, but love your enemies. That's easy. Right? I mean, it's so easy to read it without it engaging us in elect. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Jesus is like, just like, he's not leaving even a fingernail hold for how to treat people, right? It's all, it's all or nothing. Love them, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the most high for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Real quick, how many of you are glad that he is kind to the unthankful and the wicked? And the reason you should raise your hand is because that's you. And if you're like, how could you? I didn't say it. I'm just repeating it back to you. We all fall in that category. God loved us and chose us before we ever loved him and chose him. He chose us in our worst state. He chose us on our worst day. He chose us at our worst time to love us, to care for us, to die for us. It's only now, once you've discovered relationship with him, that your heart opens up. And when people use this word, I found God, baloney. You were too dumb to find God. You were, and you weren't looking for God. If you have a relationship with God, it's all predicated on one thing. God chased you. God went after you. God loves you. You weren't looking for God. God was looking for you. So when we read this right here, like do good to your enemies, and we go, how could I ever do that? Because the example is God was good to us when we were his enemy. And then it says, you're most like your father when you do what your father does. If you don't have a good example as a father, that's, that's bad. But spiritually speaking, you have the perfect father. And Steve, if you wanna honor God, the greatest way to honor him is to do what he does. So the way we love people is a reflection of whether we get God loving us. Jesus in, John, in Matthew 5 says these words, I warn you. If Jesus says, I warn you, every believer should sit forward like, get the sleep out of your eyes, open your ears, warn me about what? Listen to his words. I warn you, unless your righteousness, your goodness exceeds the Pharisees, you won't enter heaven. Read that again without any, any compulsion that he's actually talking to me. Matthew chapter five, let me read it. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. 
For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans, people without God do that. But you are to be perfect or mature, even as your father in, her, in heaven is absolutely perfect. We're to mimic him, imitate him because he's in us and alive in us. So when we love people, man, we're doing what he's done to us. So let me try to bring this in a way that you understand this. Jesus said, said you have heard it said, uh, like, love your enemies, right? Pull that back up, Matthew 5 real quick, Haley. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. So let's just talk about what, what does he mean here, the word hate and the word love? Like, you, you would think like to hate someone is like, you know, oh, they're, they're just nasty people. I hate them. They, they, they don't act right. They don't talk right. They don't think right. They don't vote right. And so we just, we get, but that, to hate someone in this context, in the original translation, is not to have a reason to hate them. It, here's what hate means. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you, if you, if you don't love them, like, like in this context, if you don't love them that way, that's actually, to love less is to hate somebody. That makes sense. Yeah. To love less. So instead of being like this, it's just to like not have the same affection for a person that you actually do love. And that, if you read that, it's almost impossible to do unless you understand God doesn't want you to leave here and try to learn to love people on your own. He wants you to leave here and be so in tune with him living inside of you that he can love people through you. Do you, do you understand that? It's, yeah. I, you know, teaching this message, it's so easy to get lost in it and just to hear the words and not let it like really sink into your heart. Holy Spirit, help me to be able to teach this. Here's the second fill in the blank. The secret of loving your enemy or your neighbor. What's the secret? How do you do it? If you're really going to listen to this message and you're going to weigh your life through whether or not you're doing it, what's the secret of loving your enemy? Verse 33, a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. So read, let's read that. He felt, one more time, he felt, okay, so let me, let me get definitions from you. What's the difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion? Sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Because the Bible says that when this guy saw this man in this condition, he had compassion. All right, so, so to have sympathy for someone, if you want to write it down, it's important. To have sympathy for someone is to feel bad for them, right? You see their situation. You see where they're at in life. You, you see things that have happened to them. And instead of just being like, eh, it, it bothers you. Let's just say it that it bothers you, right? You, you, you care that something happened. You feel bad for them. So empathy takes it one step further. Instead of just feeling bad for someone, empathy can feel what that person feels. Like, I, I've been there. I, I recognize what it means to be hurt like that. I, 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 I feel you, man. There's, there's the word, I feel you, right? I'm not just like, sorry for you. I feel, it hurts my heart too. So let me just say this real quickly. One of the curses, one of the, one of the things that will leave you coming so short with the love that Jesus is calling you to love people with is if you only have empathy for them. 
It's not enough to just identify that somebody's hurting. You've got to go one step further, and this is compassion. What's the difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion? Compassion feels what someone feels, but you're also moved to do something about what's going on in someone's life. That's what this guy did. He didn't just walk by and turn his head away from it. He didn't walk by and go, oh, that's really too bad. He actually walked by, saw the condition, stopped what he was doing. The Samaritan was no less busy than the rabbi and the temple worker. And I, you know what I don't like about this story is that they make the pastor the bad guy. Truly, it, it, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He's, this is not like a happenstance. He knew exactly what he was doing. The pastor's supposed to be the good guy who stops and cares. And when Jesus twists it and puts the bad guy in the good guy place and the good guy in the bad guy place, he takes away people's preconceived ideas of how it works in society. And he knocks down all these taboos. So real compassion... It moves us to, to be involved in a person's life. Okay, three weeks ago, if you were here uh, in that message, man, we're doing our missions, our, our little small, uh, just, just tribute to missions. We're talking about the condition of our missionaries during COVID and what's going on. And right in the middle, how many of you were here three weeks ago? Let me just, so you, I won't take the time to retell the story, but in the middle of it, the, I, the, the Lord moves in my heart. And causes me to do, not just trying to raise money, be involved in this. And here's what got me. Two things really got me. That the, the missionaries that we have in South Africa, in Johannesburg. So the, the dump in Johannesburg is not like a city block. It goes for miles, man. For miles. And people are taking little babies during this time. They can't take care of them. They can't feed them. And they're discarding them on the trash dump in Johannesburg. How many I was thinking maybe they're dealing with one a month. They're dealing with, on average, five a day. Five a day. Now, something's wrong with your heart if you can hear that story and you don't have sympathy or empathy, yes or no. If you can hear that and you're just like, oh, that's too bad. Something's wrong with you, man. And somebody needs to tell you something's wrong with you. Your heart is cold, it's hard, it's indifferent, and the gospel's not working for you if you can hear that message and not be moved by it. But here's, here's the false gospel, to feel bad about it, but not bad enough to do anything about it. You, you know, when people talk about like today, we have a lost generation in church. You want to know why? Because we have a great social gospel that gets involved in a lot of social things, but we never move out to be involved and change things for people to really give our lives away to something. So I, I'm, I, it just, it moved me. And while I'm standing up here talking about, it, I didn't plan it, but the Lord, give that motorcycle away, use it as seed. And by the time I got home, if you, somebody called me and said, I'll give you $25,000 for it. Pastor Todd, that money was in the church's bank, literally in the bank within 48 hours of that, that message. It was just amazing. And then let me give you the rest of the story. Here's what you have given in the last three weeks, just towards the, the five missionaries, $205,000. Yes, woo. It's good. It's awesome. And it's so easy to feel like, hey, man, we're involved. We care without ever going and touching a baby in South Africa. 
I'm not saying, just listen to the message real quick. So I, I found myself in this peculiar place of like, I, I did this thing. I felt like the Lord said, take care of what's in my heart. I'll take care of what's in your heart. I was obedient to it. I watched God bless it. It was great. Right on. I get to announce $205,000. I feel really good about it. And then yesterday, <laughs> Chris's back right tire, the, that little warning thing in the car that says the tire, you know, as soon as it gets cold, mine acts up. Anybody else have that car? Three of us. And the rest of you, what do you have? Because maybe I need to buy what you have, man. I buy her this really nice car, and that thing is just constantly like, I actually said to her yesterday, I'm going to trade this and get a truck for you. That's what we're doing. Something that you can just beat up, and it doesn't matter. So I, I go down to the gas station, and it's one of those, um, those air pumps that you have to you put the quarters in, right? It's like $1.75 for 10 minutes of air. There's a good deal. And I, I'm like, okay. So I take her car down and I pull up and there's a lady <clears throat> from Texas. And so we're already on the wrong foot right off the bat. <laughs> Who's your neighbor? <laughs> Not Texans. Tell you that. <laughs> so I pull up and oh, it's an air pump and a vacuum. You can turn a knob. How I many you know what I'm talking? It's like it can be a vacuum or it can be an air pump. And so I just run down. I'm just going to put air in her tire real quick. And I've been working for like 45 minutes to try to get it to shut off. And you have to have a degree from MIT to operate her car. It's like, so I'm already just like a little bit on the, you know, and I drive down there. And so this lady, she, she's not just vacuum. She's detailing her car in the only spot that you could like get to. So I drive around it and I look at her and in my mind, I, honestly, I'm like, who, who does this person think they are? What's wrong with this person? And I had a choice word for this person in my head of what, I never met them, but I knew exactly what kind of person this is. So I drive around twice, kind of like, hey, she'll see me. And she didn't even look at me. So I drive, and I drive down the road, and I'm thinking, okay, where am I going to go? And any other, you know, it's too far away. So I turn around, and I drive back, and she's still literally detailing her car in the only space. And so I just pull up next, and I park there. And at first, I'm like kind of staring at her, hoping she'll look at me. She doesn't look for anything. So I finally just start trying to mess with the car again. Maybe I can get it to go off. <clears throat> and I'm just getting, I, man, I hate to admit this, but my heart just is in this really, and I'm about to come and preach on the Good Samaritan. <laughs> and I am not a rabbi. I am not the Levite. In my mind, I'm the Good Samaritan. I gave away my motorcycle. I'd like to see a Samaritan do something like that. I felt really good about me, but I'm sitting here in my mind, really, I'm cursing this woman. So I'm not saying curse words, but I'm cursing her. You know that you don't have to curse someone to curse them. And whatever, just like, what a selfish, what a, just imagine this whole thing about the, and I know it sounds just terrible and it is just terrible. And then she does the most rotten thing in the world. She looks up, she sees me, she walks over and she said, hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't see you there. Why don't you go ahead and pull in here and you can use the money that I have in there and air your tire up real quick. <laughs> 
what? Who? And then you'll rob me, right? What, what's, there's a trick to it. Now, it it's, doesn't sound like much to you, but it really, man, it just, I'm like, oh, John. And I drive home and I pick my notes up literally to study them before coming over here yesterday afternoon. And I mean, dude, I'm that rabbi. Yeah, I can, I can do something great that's many, many miles away and it's in front of everybody and it looks good, but I couldn't, I couldn't wait 10 minutes. I couldn't love this woman. That's when Jesus said that you're hating someone. It wasn't like she ever, I just loved her less. Do you get it? And I violated that thing down to the very, I never called her a name. We never had crosswords. She doesn't have a clue what was going on in my head. But in my heart, God knows exactly. I murdered that woman according to Matthew 5. And it messed me up so bad. See, here's my deal. When I'm preaching and reading this, I don't ever want to get to the place where I can teach you, but I can live another life someplace else. And here's the problem with it. If you can listen to this message and think, ah, something's wrong with your, I never want to be a person who can read it and not be trying to do it. Anybody? And I, I was the biggest hypocrite in this church yesterday. And so I come to teach last night and my heart was so unsettled over having to stand up here and speak these words, knowing that I couldn't do it in the simplest of terms. And the only reason I'm even bringing this up to you right now, the only reason I'm even saying this, if you're really going to leave here and say, okay, God, I want to mimic you and I want to love people. If you're going to leave here and say, God, I will love people. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to meet the most unloveliest of people. Because this is not about your will. It's not about you making a decision. Here's the only thing you can do is go, God, I've got to love you more so that I can love people more. And I've got to open my heart so that you can love through me more. And if you're sitting there and it just doesn't even bother you, something's wrong with you, man. I'm sorry. But I'm not challenged like to to come up here and try to figure out how to make everybody feel good about not doing what the Bible says. We should not feel good if we're not doing it. We should not be okay with it. We should not be like, but I, I sang the song. No, that's not it. Oh, but, but pastor, I mean, I got dressed this morning. Doesn't that count? Yes, you look good. There you go. In John chapter 8, how much time? I'm doing okay. Um, John chapter 8, there's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. It's not a rumor. They actually catch her in an adulterous relationship. And so they bring her into Jesus and they throw her down before him. And it's Jesus, the woman, and then all the Pharisees. And then, so my first question, and I've taught on this before, where's the dude? Like, the, it, it takes two. Last time I checked. Yep. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> Just like, I beg to differ. Uh, it, to have this affair takes two people, and they've got the woman, they don't have the man. And the, the fact that they caught her in the act of adultery, in my mind, it was a setup in order to actually get Jesus. 
right? They, they don't care. Obviously, they don't care about the situation because if they did, they'd have the guy too. But they bring the woman in, throw her down, the Pharisees and Jesus, and this is what they say to him in order to test him, just like the lawyer was testing him. And they're testing him because they want to catch him. And if they catch him, they can go, ha, you really are not. And so they say in the law, Moses said, we can stone such a woman, but what do you say? Now, what's Jesus going to do? Disagree with the law? Because if he disagrees with it, then he's nothing. And if he agrees with it, then he's what they are. And of course, here's Jesus who goes right outside of the box. The Bible says that he bent down and began to write in the dirt. Max Lucado said he wrote the words, grace starts here. Well, that's good, man. And every one of us, grace should start right here with us, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? If it really changes us, it should start with us. So he, whatever he writes in the dirt, he stands up and here's his answer. Those of you without sin, what? Cast the first. Even if you're not a believer, we know this in culture because it's true words, isn't it? Cast the, cast the first stone. And so the Bible says that they have no comeback for that. And this is what happens. From the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stones one by one and they walk off. From the oldest to the youngest. Eventually, the only two left are Jesus and the woman. And Jesus says to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? And she looks around and she said, sir, I don't see anybody. And then Jesus says these really powerful words. Neither then do I accuse you. And most people stop the story right there. That is sympathy and that is empathy. But here's compassion. He then says to her, leave this life of sin. Get on the path of righteousness. Put yourself in a better place than you are going right now. Compassion doesn't just feel bad that someone's going down the wrong road. Compassion helps a person get off that road and on the right road. Jesus is about compassion, man. Not just identifying like, oh, I feel bad for you. I get it. He's like, listen, this is killing you. I don't condemn you. I don't judge you, but this is killing you. Uh, for time, I don't care about time. Um, you know, when Jesus said to love your enemies and bless those, bless them. Can I tell you a secret that I've learned about blessing your enemies? If there is a secret, would you want to know? Yes. Do you? Because I'm going I'm to tell you, and you may not like it. Here's the secret about blessing your enemies. God will answer your prayers. And when he blesses your enemies... You're, here's what you're going to do. You will not go, oh God, thank you for answering my prayers. You're going to go, why are you blessing my enemies? Because you prayed for me to bless them. But I didn't mean it. I was like doing that because I thought you'd actually get them through my kindness. Like that scripture in Psalms that says, by doing good, you'll heat burning coals on their head. Burn them up. When you pray for God to bless your enemies, he will answer that prayer. And the most significant thing about it is this. If you can't rejoice at the good done to a person who's not like you, who's different from you, who doesn't think like you think, act like you act, believe like you believe, or even like, if you can't be okay with God blessing them, then it's just the proof that you're not really growing in love spiritually like you thought you were. Anybody hear what I'm saying? 
like it's a, just a litmus test on it. The best thing about it is if you can learn to pray blessing on your enemy and then be okay when God blesses them, here's what it means. It means that your heart is in a really, really good place. And it actually will mean that you don't, it's okay with you. It does, it's not a hang up for you anymore. And then, so I've had to kind of go fast in this message and, and let, let me just give you the third one real quick if you're taking the notes. Let me talk about the revival that God wants. We talk about revival all the time, what that would look like. I think for most people, when we hear the words revival, we tend to think something inside of our church, like th there would be a deeper intensity over the worship. Uh, when the pastor speaks, it would just be like, you know, fire. It would just touch me. It would just like, so, so it's all about how it affects me and how it affects us. We never think of revival as doing anything in the world. It's like for in here. So let me just quickly talk about what I think the revival that God wants. Um, verse 35 and 37, the next day, uh, the Samaritan handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked, and the answer is, the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. I think real revival doesn't just like affect what's in here. I think it affects our community out there. It's the care, it's the, the compassion, the involvement. So, it's, so instead of just being okay, like, hey, there, there's a real problem out there, instead of being okay with it or just feeling bad about it, something inside of us says, okay, like how can we change it? How can we help? How can we be involved? When I was in school, one of my professors, um, it, it was in a preaching class. He, he used a quote from William Booth. Do you know who William Booth is? The founder of the Salvation Army. So this is in the late 1800s and Booth is speaking about the 1900s. So 120 years ago, and this is what Booth says about the coming decade of the 20th century. Not the 21st, but the 20th century. Listen to this quote. I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, listen to this, politics without God. <laughs> and listen to this, heaven without hell. So he was fearful that in the 20th century, the 1900s, that would be the chief problem. He was only off about 100 years, wasn't he? So I'm gonna say this one more time. The United States does not have a political problem. We have a spiritual problem in this nation. And I'm gonna take it one step further and you don't need to email me, okay? You do not, but let me just say this. Whoever you're worshiping, that you think, if we could get this guy, everything's gonna be okay, you're making a drastic mistake that every believer before you who didn't get this and made the mistake felt. When you put your faith and trust in a human to be your salvation, you are making the most horrible, 
critical mistake you could ever meet. Politics are important. The freedom that we live by comes with the votes and the culture that is around us. I agree 100%. It's important to be involved. But when you think, if I could get this guy, everything's going to be good. You're making the worst because only Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of that level of trust. He is our salvation. He is the one we put our hope in. And when the government rests on his shoulders, then there's equity for all people. Are politics important? Yes, they're important. But when you turn it into worship of a man, you are making a mistake. You're making it idolatry. And here's what, someone's gonna be disappointed on November 4th, and then the rest of us are gonna be disappointed on November 5th. Because no human is our salvation. Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you. Thank you. You... Hmm. How do I end it? Well, communion probably, huh? <laughs> I, maybe here's the, here it is. Um, you know, when I taught this yesterday, I was really grieved in my spirit when I stood up to teach. I was just grieved at myself. Just was, just like, you know, <laughs> it's just so easy to teach a message, to hear a message, to, to, to listen. And it's like a rock that skips over still water. Unless it dives down and penetrates, it doesn't change us to have more knowledge about a story. It only changes us if it can hit our heart. You hear what I said? So how, man, how do we leave here with this story? I don't want to make you smarter about a story. I don't want you to leave here and have some piece of information that you didn't have. I want you to leave here with your heart touched like, God, how am I ever going to do this right here? I want you to truly feel challenged, but it wrecked me yesterday that I, I was a Pharisee. Am a Pharisee? Don't want to be a Pharisee. Anybody? Just don't want to be that guy. Don't want to be that person. I don't ever, I need to quit teaching if it's not something I'm trying to actually do when nobody's looking. Because I'm not worthy of teaching then if I just can be eloquent with a story, but it doesn't change my heart too. I just, maybe, look, maybe it's just for me. I don't think so, but maybe it's just for me. Maybe it's just God saying, hey, what's going on inside of your own heart with this message? So maybe it doesn't need to go any further than that. But I just, I think what happened yesterday was God kind of opening my eyes to it would be so easy to teach this message and not actually see where the rubber meets the road in it. And I don't want you to hear it and not consider where does the rubber meet the road in your life too. Because if you really came here, you really made the effort to be here, then you should leave here more like Jesus after it's done if it worked the right yes, way. Amen. That's what I want for you, to be more like Jesus. So Pastor Terry's going to come and lead us in communion this morning. And maybe that's the thing to consider. When Paul talked about in communion, we take it without ever examining our hearts. And then because we do it that way, we're taking it in the wrong way. I, I would just challenge all of us when Terry is leading us, examine your heart and say to the Lord, you can go anywhere you want to go. Talk to me about anything you want to talk to me about. 
nothing's off the table. And even if it's hard for me to, to understand it or to do it or to, to hear it, God, I just wanna open myself to you this morning. And let's get our hearts in that right, that right place.